0: I begin by holding up an article, a photograph, and I'm going to read the, the heading underneath it. I don't know if you can see it with that camera, but it's a, it's a photograph. The caption is, he's got the whole world in his hands. It's a photograph of a man holding something over a balcony that looks like a doll and somebody else holding on to the man. He's got her whole world in his hands, it says. No, that's not a doll hanging in midair It is a four-month-old baby, Raquel Regalado. After a family quarrel, her father, an unemployed laborer in Burbank, California, threatened to drop Raquel to her death 30 feet below. Police nabbed him just in time, and fireman Ron Perlman left, saved the child. That is a photograph of two men... One, a father trying to destroy his child. Another, a total stranger trying to save a child. One reacting because he lost his job. Another responding, trying to do his job. Now imagine, project that scene through years ahead when one day this child will find out about this and the impact that's going to have on her life. Psalm 127 says, most of us know it, that children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is God's gift. It's a heritage, it is God's gift to us. There was a man who came home in the evening, greeted by his five year old boy. As soon as he walked in the door, he said, Daddy, how much do you make an hour? He said, Well, son, I don't really think that's any of your business. Oh, please, Daddy, come on, tell me, how much money do you make an hour? He says, Well, I'm going to tell you, but you promise not to tell anybody. You don't want everybody to know what everybody makes. He goes, Okay, I promise. He goes, I make $25 an hour. Little boy hung his head sadly and said, No. He said, Daddy, can I borrow $10? And the father was angry. He just got home and he said, Ah, I get it. All you want is my money. I work hard to provide for you. I do what I can and, and I don't just get it so that you can grab it and spend it. Go to your room. He snapped. Well, the boy burst into tears, went to his bedroom. Later on, dad came in and said, I'm sorry, I was way too hard on you. You tell me what it is you want and if it's worthwhile... I'll get you that $10. Well, just then, the little boy ran over across the room, got his piggy bank, emptied it out, and he had $15 in there. And Dad said, now, you've you got $15. Surely you'll be able to buy whatever you want with that. Why do you want another $10? He said, for you, Dad. I'd like to buy one hour of your time. You know that of all the tasks there are to do in life, of all the occupations we could ever engage in, The most important job is that of being a parent. It's the most important job. And 16%, it is estimated, of a child's time is spent at school. 1% of a child's time is spent in Sunday school. 83% of a child's time is spent in the home. So it is the most important task in the world. It's also the hardest. It's a difficult task because children are people. They have their own personalities, their own will, their own desires. They're unpredictable because they're just like us. They're human beings. Now some of you are right in the middle of a struggle. Some of you tonight are dealing with the rebel force. (laughs) The teenage years. That will is being exercised in a way you've never seen it before And you're wondering, can you hang on? You know, Mark Twain gave some advice. I don't think it's good advice, but he offered this counsel for raising teenagers. Mark Twain said, Things run along pretty smoothly till your kid reaches 13. That's the time you need to stick them in a barrel, hammer the lid down, nice and snug, and feed them through the knot hole. (laughs) And then, about the time he turns 16, plug up the knot hole. Show of hands, how many tonight in this room are parents? Look around. That's a lot of folks. Okay, hands down, how many here tonight aren't yet but plan one day or want one day to be parents? Raise your hands. Okay, hands down. How many of you have had parents? Raise your hands. I'm just <laughs> I want to I begin by dispelling a myth. It's the perfect parent myth. There are none. So relax. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. You can be a good one. You can follow the biblical principles and get the right tools and manage to be a good one. But there are no perfect parents except one that's God the Father. But all of us have failed and will fail. Now, the trouble, somebody said, with the job of being a parent is that by the time you've got experience on the job, you are unemployed. You know, you just figure it out. You go, I'm getting this thing down. They're out of the house. So, you can relax a little bit with that. And I turn your attention tonight to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. One verse, very simple, but very comprehensive, I think you will find. In fact, I found it to be so comprehensive, a series of truth packed into this little verse that I decided it's going to take me two messages to cover verse 4. And so this is part one tonight. I'm going to be laying some foundation and you're going to get some good biblical counsel on raising children. And one of them will not be to stick them in a barrel, by the way. I want to begin with a problem. I call it the problem of parenting. And what I mean by that is not that... Inherently, there's a problem being a parent, but there is pressure. When you decide to become a parent, there is pressure all around you. There's pressure in your culture, in society, and there can be pressure in the home. For instance, if you think of just when Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he wrote it to a culture that was immersed in Roman ideology, it was very different than American culture. Very different than modern culture. We've told you before, if you remember back a few studies, that in the ancient culture, marriage was not considered to be sacramental as much as simply contractual. That is, they didn't see it as something from God, something that's a holy sacrament of matrimony. It was just something you do to have kids and provide sex for the man. That's how it was viewed in the Greco-Roman culture. And because of that, there was a backlash of having children. They thought, why should we even do this? So eventually, it turned on them. And we quoted to you what Demosthenes once said. He said, we men have courtesans for our sexual pleasure, concubines to serve our persons, and we have wives also to bear our legitimate children and keep the home. So there was a backlash against it. Having children was considered a duty to the state, but it became seen as an inconvenience and a burden. In fact, one historian, get this, one historian sings the praises of a woman who actually had borne three children to one husband. Because it was getting so rare to do that. Now, to make it worse, and I mentioned this last week, there was the law called the patria potestas, the absolute authority of the father. That is, he had no accountability and could do whatever he wanted with his children. So, when a baby was born, a Roman baby, that baby was placed before the father's feet. If the father bent down and picked up the child in his arms, that child could be taken home to live at home. If the child was left on the ground and the father walked away, the child was discarded. In fact, here's a letter dating from 1 BC, a man by the name of Hilarion to his wife Alice. Evidently, he was in Alexandria, Egypt in the Roman army, and he writes, if good luck to you, you have another child. If it is a male child, let it live. If it is a female, cast it out. The Roman statesman Seneca said, We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife into a sick cow, and children born weak or deformed, we drown. And so each night in Roman cities, children that were discarded and kept alive were taken to the forum of the city where they would be gathered up and taken off to be raised as either a slave. Or a prostitute. So the pressure of that in that society, in being a parent in a Christian home, in that kind of a culture, there's a lot of pressure. Now in our culture, things are different, but they're not that much better, to be honest with you. With the prevailing ideology and pressure of abortion, abandonment, illegitimate birth, euthanasia, There are a lot of pressures on anyone wanting to have a child in this culture. I believe you and I are watching, before our very eyes, the death of the family. And all sorts of things are contributing factors. Immorality, pornography, abortion, as we mentioned, gay marriages on the rise. It is estimated that only 7% of American children, 7% of children in America live in a family where dad is the breadwinner and mom is the homemaker. And one researcher by the name of Rick Weiss noted, couples today with children are frequently experiencing higher levels of frustration and lower levels of happiness. And that is because more and more in our culture, it is becoming an inconvenience and a burden like in ancient Rome to have children. After all, if you have children, it changes everything. It changes these things economically. A woman's body will change. It changes responsibility. I have to not do certain things and activities because I have a child now. Those are pressures. Now that's within society. There's also problems of pressure within the home. You know, children can unify a relationship. I've seen that. I've seen a child come into a marriage and they just are brought so beautifully together in love with this this common being. But you know, in other relationships children undo a marriage. Sort of like the sun. Isn't it interesting that the same sun that melts ice hardens clay? The same sun that bakes and darkens the skin will bleach out a garment. And it can be that way with children. There are pressures within a marriage. Now why are there problems? It's easy to figure out. There's two people, husband and wife, with two different personalities and two way different ways of doing everything. So there's going to be obviously some disagreements. First of all, there's often disagreements on whether they should have children at all. Some don't want a child. No, I don't want to be tied down, he might say. And she's ready to nest. Or she might say... I I don't want to go through that kind of change physically. I don't want to go through the pain of parenthood or the possibility of a miscarriage. And the trend in our culture is that couples are deciding less and less to have children. I even heard this week, a, a friend told me of a couple, the husband decided to divorce his wife because she wanted children. And it kept being brought up, and the only way of escape, he thought, is to leave. And he left. Then also there could be disagreements over the timing of children. You know, he wants to wait till the money comes in. He has a better job. She doesn't want to wait. Her biological clock is ticking. All her friends are having babies, and so there's a disagreement. Also, there can be a disagreement over the quantity of children. She's happy with two. He wants ten, man. Of course, he doesn't have to be at home with the ten every day, feeding them, changing the diaper, etc., And there's often disagreements over how to raise the child. Now, I find this to be the greatest area of disagreement when it comes to parents and children in a marriage. How are we going to raise the kids? On one hand, the man, he might be a little heavy-handed in his discipline, just like dad was with him. And the only scripture verse he may have memorized, besides, Wives, submit to your own husbands. The only other one he memorized is foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. By the way, that's Proverbs (laughs) 22.15. She may be more lenient. I don't want to spoil his creativity, she will say. Now, here's the odd thing. Do you know that most couples rarely, if ever, talk about those things? Oh, they'll say, you want kids? Uh, Yeah, Good. How many? And often, the rest is, let's wing it. But it's important to agree to come on the same page when it comes to the future of a child. After all, this is a life. This is a child you're talking about. This is a human being. And it's been well said, it's easier to build a boy than it is to repair a man. So you want to do it right. Next, I want to look at the partnership of parenting. I bring that up because you'll notice something in verse 4. You may have picked it up and wondered about it. It's directed to fathers, isn't it? Isn't that odd? Husbands are addressed, wives are addressed, children are addressed, then fathers. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now, does that mean that mothers have no role in parenting? (laughs) Are you kidding? Are you kidding? As if you could keep a mom away from it if you tried. It is so part of her nature. That nurturing, that nesting instinct is what God made her to be. I was at the hospital the other night. And in the waiting room was a, it was a young couple. And their 15-month-old baby had a bump on her head. She ran into something. I could tell this was their first child. Just a little bump. But it was enough to bring them to the hospital. Bless their hearts, you know. Now, they were both concerned, but you could tell mom owned this situation. (laughs) This was her baby, and get out of her way, man. It was precious. If you compare the role of a mom and a dad, it's mom who has more input, more opportunity, spends obviously more time with the child, thus exerts more influence on the child. And Paul even mentions that. He writes to young Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and he said... You know, you have faith in your life that comes from your grandmother Eunice and your mother Lois. He remarked that it was from them that he picked up on this. It was the influence of the mother and the grandmother. And also, in the Bible, fathers and mothers are seen as equals, partners when it comes to children honoring them. For instance, we quoted this last week, Exodus 20, verse 12, "...honor your father and your mother, that you may live long in the land." So, honoring is on the same level for the mom and the dad. Also, Proverbs 1, verse 8, "...my son, hear the instruction of your father, do not forsake the law of your mother." And that is repeated in chapter 6. So, in a marriage, fathers and mothers are partners, according to the Bible. And truth be told, moms do a lot more. I'll say generally. I'm painting with a broom here. But as far as I know, they do a lot. In fact, the Detroit Free Press ran an article I wanted to share with you. They cited a study by a lawyer named Michael Minton on the monetary value of a wife's services in the home. I can see women taking notes. (laughs) They listed various functions that she performs. Chauffeur, gardener, family counselor, maintenance worker, cleaning woman, housekeeper, cook, errand runner, bookkeeper slash budget manager, interior decorator, caterer, dietitian, secretary, public relations person, hostess. And this attorney figured the dollar value, this was in 1981, we've taken it and adjusted it with the consumer price index, the monetary value of that woman in that home per week $1,557. And sixty-three percent, or an annual wage of eighty thousand dollars nine hundred ninety-nine and twenty-eight cents per year, and it's going up. <laughs> so that brings us to the question: since there is a partnership, the Bible acknowledges of a man. Then why is it that Ephesians six four addresses fathers? Why does it say fathers? I'm going to give you a few possibilities. Number one. It could be that Paul recognizes a truth about men. It could be that he recognizes that this is an area of neglect. And I think many of us would agree with that, that of all of a man's responsibilities, oftentimes the least attended to, the most neglected, is the area of the children. He passes them off to the wife. Look, I work hard all day. My job is to bring home the paycheck. Your job is the children and everything else in life. Socrates said to the men of Athens, Why do you turn and scrape every stone to gather wealth and take so little time with the care of your children to whom one day you must relinquish all? That's wisdom. Why would you spend so much time on your business and wealth when one day you're going to be turning that over to the very child you're neglecting? So it could be that Paul recognized... Okay, dads, this is an area you need to hear. He does it also in Colossians chapter 3. So Paul is simply saying perhaps, Dads, you got to be involved, man. You can't pass this one off to your wife. You can't hide behind overcommitment. This is for all of you dads, me included. Dr. Lauren Motion, National Institute of Mental Health, analyzed the United States census figures, and he found the absence of a father is a stronger factor than poverty in contributing to juvenile delinquency. You know how important that is to hear that? Because we say, well, there's juvenile delinquency in crime because there's poor neighborhoods. The key factor is absentee dads. Hey, listen, the cure to the crime rate, the cure for crime isn't the electric chair, it's the high chair. That's where it begins. And fathers are that vital link that a child has between himself and the heavenly father it means so much there's another possibility it could be that paul recognizes the tendency of men to be harsh because you'll notice in that verse fathers do not provoke your children to wrath and again he repeats that in colossians he says it twice in his letters men can tend to be harsh we have boomier voices they can be very intimidating. We stand up tall and we boom with that voice and that intensity and that muscle. It scares kids. Third possibility, and I, I I look at all of them, but I lean toward this one, is simply Paul is addressing the man as the head of the home. He's implying by fathers also the mothers who are partners, but he's basically saying, All in all, I want to just talk to the one who has the final responsibility and accountability before God. So, no matter how you divide up the roles, whether you're going to take out the garbage and that's not your responsibility, you do the children, I'll do the paycheck. Bottom line, Paul is saying, is dads, I'm talking to you. That's where the buck stops with you. You're the head of that home. The father is responsible for the overall direction, discipline, provision, and raising of children in the home. Overcommitted men, listen carefully. And just in case there are some men who are here even, and you're contemplating in your mind the possibility of leaving the marriage you're in right now. Leaving that wife behind for somebody else, which also means leaving those children behind. You listen carefully to what Paul is saying. James Dobson, focused on the family, said, West, The Western world stands at a great crossroads in its history. And it's my opinion that our very survival as a people will depend on the presence or absence of masculine leadership in the home. Who reads most of the books on Christian family living? 80% women. Who are involved mostly when it comes to praying Church attendance, listening to Christian broadcasting and programming. There's a lot of statistics, by the way. Women, by and large. They see the need and respond. So, yeah, you're a team. It's a partnership. You honor mother and father. You listen to father and mother. You're both on the same page. But God is holding the father and implying both, but holding the father responsible for the family. Now, this takes us to the third and final phase of tonight's message. What's the purpose of parenting? The purpose of, and we're going to get more in depth next week, but here's the purpose basically of parenting. It's in verse 4 to bring them up. That's it. To bring them up. You fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up. And it's qualified in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That's a commission from God. To bring them up. The word in Greek that Paul used is the word. It means to nourish to maturity. To nourish up a child to maturity. That's the purpose of parenting. You want them to grow up. You want them to get out. You want them to mature. Right? You want to bring them up. It doesn't say put them down. It doesn't say hold them back. It doesn't say keep them home. Bring them up. Nurture them up to maturity so that they can handle life. I remember when my son, Nathan, was born, and I held him in my arms for the first time. They washed him, and I cut the cord, and I'm holding him. And as I'm holding him, I'm thinking, wow, I hope I don't drop him. (laughs) That was my first thought, honestly. And then I thought, you know, he's so light. He's so light. And as I was thinking that, I couldn't help but have another thought of the, the terrible weight of responsibility That was coming along with this light little package. And so I started thinking, what what do I do now? (laughs) What's next? Here's what's next. Here's the commission. Bring them up. See, a parent is a partner with God in discipling a child. We're God's partners in discipling children. So it's a commission. It's also a calling. Now, I want you to notice this. I'm going to get more into the discipline part next week and the training and the admonition of the Lord next week. But I want you to notice some linguistic things to get this whole package tonight. It is not only a commission, it's a calling because it's put in the active voice. The Greek language here is very precise. It is written in the active voice. In other words, fathers, you must do the acting here for your child. Children, don't come with automatic. I don't want the standard, I'd like the automatic child, please. The one that just grows up by itself won't happen. It takes the acting upon by the outside force of the loving, nurturing father to bring that child up. Why? Because every one of us when we're born, even though we look so cute, we have a sin nature. We do, we have it. Proverbs 22, foolishness is bound up in the heart, the very fiber of a child. A child has a sin nature like anybody else. He didn't develop it. He has it. He just learns how to use it better when he grows up. But if that nature is left to itself, you're looking at disaster. Did you know that? Solomon writes in Proverbs 29, 15, a child left to himself brings Shame. You must never let a child be the parent. What should we do? What should we do? What what, what do you think we should do? No. Child doesn't become the parent. Child left to to himself causes shame. A few years ago, the Houston Police Department published a leaflet. I'm only going to read a couple things to you. It's called How to Ruin Your Children. (laughs) Pretty interesting title. Several points were listed. I'm going to give you three begin with infancy to give the child everything he wants never give him any spiritual training let him wait till he's 21 and then let him decide for himself pick up everything he leaves lying around so he will be experienced in throwing responsibility on everyone else this is in the active voice meaning fathers Here is your commission and your calling is to do this, is to act with that child and interact. It's also a command because it's in the imperative mood. That means it's a commandment. It's not God's suggestion to you. This isn't friendly advice. God isn't saying, hey, listen, there's a lot of good stuff out there. My advice would be train up a child. Bring him up. This is God's commandment. In fact, and listen carefully, this is as much as God's commandment as go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In fact, you can go out into the world and preach the gospel, and you can neglect your children, and you failed. Billy Sunday said, The tragedy of my life is that though I've led thousands of people to Christ, my own sons are not saved. And then finally, it's a commitment, because it's not only in the active voice, it's not only in the present tense Uh, It's not only in the active voice, not only in the imperative mood. It's in, I gave it away, the present tense. Meaning, it's an ongoing, perpetual, unremittent, ongoing commitment. You don't pull it off in a day. You don't do it in a weekend. You don't do it in a month. You don't do it in a year. It is a commitment to a lifetime and a lifestyle. You're going to bring that child up. The training and the admonition of the Lord. We're going to qualify that more next time, but I just want to add a note to that. That doesn't mean you have to maintain a high level of intensity in the home. You can overwhelm a child. You know that you can smother a child if you're always intense. Have you prayed about that glass of milk? (laughs) Maybe God didn't want you to have it. Oh, bug off. Lighten up. You You can make a child go the opposite direction. Just as permissiveness is wrong, so is smothering a child. That's not what he means. He's simply saying that you're never off duty. You bring them up. You continue to bring them up. You take them higher. You bring them up higher. And as long as you're alive and they're alive, you do everything you can to nurture that child to maturity. Now next time when we're together, we're going to look back at verse 4 and we're going to get into it a little more and we're going to discuss these things like training and discipline and explore what it means specifically to bring them up as it says here in the training and admonition of the Lord. I hope you learned some scriptural tools along with me that are rewarding tools. But tonight, in closing, I don't want you to be going, oh, no. There's going to be another talk on parenting. <laughs> and I know, automatically, you think of all of those things that you and I have failed at in the past. It's very typical for parents. And you've you're struggling with the child perhaps right now, and you've heard, train up a child in the way he should go so many times, you're nauseated by it. I want you rather to look forward to the tools that you're going to get and I'm going to get in the next couple weeks. You know, somebody took the principles of what we just read and other principles in the Bible. They were obviously struggling with their children, and they put it into the language that a pet owner could understand. An animal lover. And I want to close reading this to you. This mother said, I just realized that while children are dogs, that is, loyal and affectionate, teenagers are cats. <laughs> she continues, It's so easy to be a dog owner. You feed it, train it, boss it around. It puts his head on your knee and gazes at you as if you were a Rembrandt painting. It bounds indoors with enthusiasm when you call it. Then around age 13, your adoring little puppy turns into a big old cat. When you tell it to come inside, it looks amazed. As if wondering who died and made you emperor. Instead of dogging your footsteps, it disappears. You won't see it again until it gets hungry. Then it pauses on its sprint through the kitchen long enough to turn up its nose at whatever you are serving. (laughs) When you reach out to ruffle its head in that old affectionate gesture, it twists away from you, then gives you a blank stare as if trying to remember where it has seen you before. (laughs) Not realizing that the dog is now a cat. You think something must be desperately wrong with it. It seems so antisocial, so distant, sort of depressed. It won't go on family outings. Since you're the one who raised it, taught to, to fetch and stay and sit on command, you assume that you did something wrong. Flooded with guilt and fear, you redouble your efforts to make your pet behave. Only now you're dealing with a cat. So everything that worked before now produces the opposite of the desired result. Call it, it runs away. Tell it to sit, and it jumps on the counter. The more you go toward it, wringing your hands, the more it moves away. Instead of continuing to act like a dog owner, you can learn to behave like a cat owner. Put a dish of food near the door and let it come to you. But remember that a cat needs your help and your affection too. Sit still, and it will come seeking that warm, comforting lap that is not entirely forgotten. Be there to open the door for it. One day your grown-up child will walk into the kitchen, give you a big kiss and say, you've been on your feet all day, let me get those dishes for you. And then you'll realize your cat is a dog again. You know what that was? That was simply a paraphrase, very loose paraphrase of train up a child and the way he will go and when he's old he won't depart. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you the only perfect parent who ever existed. Your parenting skills are so unique and so amazing we can learn from them and we aim to do so. I pray, Lord, that as we search the scriptures that we would shed any preconceived notions and buy into what you reveal to us. And watch it work. Watch you work through your word. Thank you, Father, for the tremendous heritage that you've given us. I pray that you would help parents here tonight or listening throughout the country to get together as moms and dads, husbands and wives, and agree on a strategy of raising the children so that there would be harmony between them for the sake of the marriage and the sake of the child. Lord, I pray that that partnership would be reserved, preserved. And Father, we pray that our goal, our desire when we see those kids is to think, now how can I bring them up rather than how can I put them down or how can I hold them back. We want them to be mature contributors to your kingdom, Lord. Useful arrows as the arrows of a mighty warrior in the words of that psalm. In Jesus' name, help us. Amen.